Psalm 145, verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another, and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty, and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness, and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless His holy name forever and ever. Amen. How many of you can say that you are truly happy this morning? Truly happy. I'm 100% truly happy. A few of you are not. Okay, that's, that's, that's fair. It's honest. How many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand if you don't want to, but how many of you feel like something's just kind of missing? You have happy moments. You, 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 you want to be happy, but there's just something that's not quite there. And I have that from time to time. I tend to be a pretty optimistic guy, but, but there are times where I'm just, it's just you're, you're coming up short. Not quite there. We have happy moments, but it's like the, the place of true joy is elusive. You just can't quite get there. Now, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about because you're just so happy you make the rest of us sick. That's okay, too. But Psalm 145, this is the last known psalm of David. Now, he may have written one or more of the others as the Psalms close out, but this is the last one that we know David wrote, that we're, we're sure of this, a psalm of praise of David as it's listed. And it's been called the crown jewel of praise. Crown jewel of praise. It truly is a royal psalm. Better known among Orthodox Jews as the Ashrei. What is the Ashrei? Well, the Ashrei in the Hebrew simply means happy or praiseworthy. And what Orthodox Jews, and they draw this out of the Talmud, what they do is they take Psalm 145, and this is a psalm of daily prayer for the Jewish people. Even today, still prayed among the Orthodox. You go to Israel and you stand there by the Wailing Wall, you'll see Hasidic Jews, they're up against the wall or near the wall, rocking and praying and rocking and praying. Well, they have a series of prayers they pray through the day. This is one of them. The Asherah is prayed two or three times daily by the more orthodox of the Jewish people. Now, what, what they've done with this psalm in the Talmud is the old rabbis took this psalm and they added two verses at the beginning of the psalm and then one verse at the end of the psalm to make up what they call the Asherah. Here are the two at the very beginning. Psalm 84, verse 4. How blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And in Psalm 144.15, How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So the Asherah begins with those two verses. Before you get into Psalm 145. And the reason is, the rabbis declared that there needs to be an hour of meditation before you start reading this psalm. Before you pray this psalm. And so again, how blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. And they'll read that first line of the Asherah and meditate on it. And stay there. And eventually get to the next. How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are those whose God is the Lord. And they'll meditate and think through and process this. 
before coming to the first verse of Psalm 145. Psalm 115, verse 18 then, is stuck at the very end of Psalm 145. And it reads, But as for us, we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forever. Praise the Lord. And so again, you put those three psalms, the two before, the one after, those verses with Psalm 145, and you have the Asherah. Apparently, the rabbis felt like something was missing with Psalm 145. There's something missing here. And if you read and study 145 as we will this morning, you will discover they're right. There is something missing. There is a jewel missing from this crown. Something missing from this happy condition. And I'll explain what that is in just a few minutes. Look at verse 1. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. I said this is a royal psalm. Well, it begins royally. It's interesting the wording that David chooses. Because he calls God his king. Actually, he doesn't call God his king. He calls God the king. In the Hebrew there, the language, I will extol you, my God, O king. The word there, O, is literally the. My God, the king. Well, why does David begin this way? Other psalms, he didn't do that. Psalm 5, verse 2. David said, Heed the sound of my cry for help, my king and my God. For to you I pray. Psalm 84, verse 3, The bird has found a house and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her her young. Even your altars, O Lord of hosts, my king and my God. This psalm takes a very different direction right out of the gate with the first verse than Psalm 139 that we studied last week. Psalm 139, we talked about, is as personal as it gets. David is saying, you are my God. And I love you, Lord. And it's you and me. And we are intimately connected. And we are in this deep relationship. You come to Psalm 145, and David cries out, I will extol you, my God, O King, the King. What's he saying? He is offering a subtle difference here that God is not just his King, but God is the King. David moves from a personal proclamation to the general population. He's not just my king, David is saying. He's everybody's king. He is the king. And this king demands our loyalty. In fact, if you want to jot down some things as we go through, the first to note is his royalty demands all loyalty. His royalty demands all loyalty. We forget this sometimes, that God is not just our God. Jesus is not just my Lord. Jesus is Lord. God is God. And whether people choose in this day and age to accept Him or not does not change the fact that He is God over all. John 18.37, we've talked several times about this recently, where Pilate said to Jesus, "So, So you are a king? And Jesus said, You say correctly that I'm a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Jesus is king of all. Not just my king. Not just my God. And so Paul writes in Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. So when people from time to time will say, well, my God wouldn't do that, or, or that's not the way my God is, we need to remember there's only one God. And there's only one Jesus. And sometimes we have a tendency to create Him in our own image rather than the other way around. But He is the one true God and His royalty demands all loyalty. There is a point coming, and you know this, when all people will stand before God. Will all will come before and recognize and see finally Him as their King. Paul says in Romans 11.36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Now that's a simple truth, but it's an important place to begin this psalm. Because this is a royal psalm, a kingdom psalm, if you will, and His royalty demands all loyalty. If there's something missing in your happiness, perhaps that's a good place to start or go back to. That God is the King. Verse 2, David says, Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Why did the rabbis call for the reading of the Ashrei every day? Well, there's a really cool truth here, kind of a principle to be applied. If you struggle with being happy, practice. Practice happiness. Practice, yeah, 
Practice looking in the mirror when you wake up in the morning and smiling at yourself. You do it a few times and you won't help cracking up and noticing the things that really need to be brushed, you know, and cleaned. Practice happiness daily. The old rabbis were on to something here, very valuable. The ashray, happy. And if you want to be happy, man, pray this prayer two, three times a day. Practice happiness on a daily basis. Because true happiness doesn't just happen, it's practiced. It's walked out. And in many cases, it's learned. Verse 3, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. In other words, you never run out of things to praise Him for. You can try, but the more you search out the Lord, the more you seek to understand Jesus, the more there is to be thankful for, the more there is to praise Him for, it never gets old. Finding reasons to worship. The depth of our Father. This is why we're going to worship throughout all eternity, because we will never run out of things to praise Him for. He is unsearchable, and our worship will be an unsearchable thing. And by the way, happiness and worship are not mutually exclusive. I don't know how you can worship God and not ultimately start to break into that place of joy. How you can be dour and sour and down in the mouth while lifting up praise to God. It it, it doesn't work. Because if you are depressed and sorrowful and and inwardly looking while you're trying to worship, your worship's not going to get very far. Because worship draws out that joy in us. Psalm 98 verse 4 says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth, break forth, and sing for joy and sing praises. So if you're searching for joy this morning, worship God the King. Day in, day out, every day. Praise Him day in and day out. Because without that, you can't continue to worship the Lord without experiencing a changed nature. You know God's doing some things changing the nature of this very fellowship. We were just talking about this this morning. Friday night, a week ago Friday, when we had that evening of praise. It was just wonderful. And unique, different in some ways. Not weird, it wasn't, you know, I'm not trying to freak anybody out. It wasn't bizarre, it was just, it was a different experience of worship, at least that I've I've had. And to go to these places and to realize God is forming, even us as a fellowship, and He is drawing us along, and we should be changing. We should be altered in our walk of faith. If we're the same as a church fellowship that we were seven years ago, something's wrong. Because the Lord is dynamic and drawing us forward in faith and in understanding and in worship and in our spirits. He is molding us after the pattern of His will and doing what He sees is important to do. Now, before we go any further... There's something I, I need to point out here, and I, and I told you that I'd show you. There, there's something missing here. Now this psalm, like some of the psalms we've seen before, it is in the Hebrew, if you could see this, if we had Hebrew eyes, it's an alphabetical acrostic. So each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the alphabet, starting with Aleph and running all the way down to verse 21, ending with Tav, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But let me ask a question. How many know how many letters are in the Hebrew alphabet? How many letters? 22. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. How many verses in Psalm 145? 21. Something's missing. There's a jewel missing here. A jewel missing from this crown. One letter is missing. Now, if you were to ask Rick which letter is missing, I'd say none. Because that's the letter that's missing. Actually, pronounced in the Hebrew noon, the letter N-U-N, is missing from the psalm. Right there in the middle, you go through and you start tracking it. In the Hebrew, you're reading, okay, Aleph, Bet, Gimel, and all the way down, and suddenly you skip. You just skip the letter noon. Why? David, come on, you're, you're a songwriter par excellence. You are the poet of poets. And you write Psalm 145, what the Hebrews call the Ashray, and it is happy, and it is praiseworthy, and it is beautiful, and it's missing a letter. And for someone who likes to be as meticulous as I like to be in my study, that drives me nuts. Well, you couldn't come up with the letter? You couldn't come up with a phrase that would follow that letter noon? You couldn't find a suitable line? What's going on here? Something that a scribe must have missed it or lost it along the way. 
Well, that would explain it. And some of the you know, pontificating scholars out there puffing their pipes and thinking through things in a professorial manner would say, yes, it must have just been lost as the scribes passed it on, scroll to scroll, person to person, down the line. To which I respond, how do you lose a verse? I mean, really? You're telling me that somewhere along the line, a verse got dropped. There are people who look at the scriptures that way. Well, we have things that are missing because they just didn't get it in. Someone forgot, you know, or as they were writing through. And so this is a great example of that. 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And they just must have dropped the sentence starting with noon. I don't think so. The scribes, gang, were incredibly meticulous. And they were not out there on their own. They worked in groups and they checked each other's work. And if one mistake was made as they copied down a scroll, they would tear it up and start over and go again and make sure everything was right on. They were very meticulous. But, but it's far more than that. Hey, I can accept human error. What I don't accept is divine error. Now think about this honestly. Is God capable of keeping His Word? Do you believe in the God of all creation, the God of the universe? Do we believe He's perfect? If He is, then are you telling me that God accidentally dropped a sentence? Well, you know, maybe He was busy in some third world country when the scribe was writing and and, and left this one out. And then by the time it got copied into our English Bibles, it was too late. Well, it's already missing. Just let it go. They don't read Hebrew anyway. You know, they're not going to see it missing. God inspires His Word. There are people who disagree with me on this, but gang, I reject the so-called scholarly notion that this verse was lost because I don't think it was ever here. I don't think God makes mistakes. And so, the missing letter noon is missing on purpose. Well, why would that be? Read on, verse 4. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works. I will meditate, David writes. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Awesome. I, I, I just love that section because it's this, the concept is, well, it's, it's Friday night a week ago. It's the idea of just telling of the glories of God. I'm just sharing that. I'm just talking about the wonders, the splendors, the joys of the Father. Missing something in your happiness? Talk about the splendor of God. Consider the King. Look at what He's done, what He's doing, what He's promised to do. And something starts to elevate in your sense of joy because of who He is. This is not some trumped up religious fantasy. This is a real, grounded, archaeological, geographical, historical truth. To be able to look back and talk about what God has done, we have to know it truly. And through His Word, we have that truth. And by His Spirit, we're able to look back and see these things. And God has proven Himself time and time again. And and honestly, once bits and pieces of Scripture start getting lost or dropped, it brings into question the legitimacy of all Scripture. If you can't take all Scripture as God breathed, then why do you take any of it? Paul said to Timothy, from childhood, you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God. How much Scripture? All Scripture. And inspired isn't... The the word, and you know this, it's God-breathed. All Scripture is breathed by God. This is not like all Scripture is someone sitting around getting an idea for a tune, you know, and writing it down. Oh, here's a poetic thought. I'll expand on that. No, it's God speaking His Word into the hearts of man. And Paul says it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's nothing missing in His Word that wasn't intentionally left out. And so as we read this this wonderful telling of His greatness and and the past glories, well, we've seen so much of it already. And we can know and be assured that what the Bible says has happened, truly has happened. My son was asking me the other day, he said, yeah, I, I heard something just about this in the book of Joshua somewhere or something, that scientists say the Bible can't be right because Joshua 
said that the sun stood still for a day? You know, well, yeah, the Bible declares that. Joshua and the armies, they went to battle, and the sun stood still in the sky. And what's interesting is the science looks back and tracks the stars and tracks history. There is question. There seems to be a day missing. Wonder why. You know, the Bible does not declare things as truth that are not truth. Jonah, the story of Jonah, come on, a guy swallowed by a fish and in his belly for three days without dying? That's ridiculous. Jesus didn't think so. Jesus looks back and calls Jonah the prophet and draws off of that story. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the, of the sea creature for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth for three days. And Jesus died and was buried and three days later resurrected, just like Jonah was swallowed by a fish and spit out onto the ground. Fantastic story? I'll give you that. True? Absolutely. Because the Word of God tells us so. And I trust this and I believe this. Now let me ask you, has the Scripture as written in verses 4-7 through been fulfilled? Have we seen this? Go back and look at it again. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Oh, the glorious splendor of your majesty. And on your wonderful works I will meditate. Well, David did. Men shall tell of the power of your awesome acts. I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Oh, does this happen one generation to the next? Sometimes, kind of. There is coming a day when this will mark the way our world functions. Where one generation will gloriously tell the next of all the mighty works of the Lord. Where this will be prime time. Where this will be what we talk about. We won't need Kindles or Blu-ray or 3D cinemas to excite our imagination. We're not going to need those stories. Why? Because the stories of the Lord will be all we talk about. Because the glories of the Lord will fill up the conversation of mankind. We will be those who tell the wonders of God from generation to generation. We sing the song, I'm amazed. I am amazed at what your word tells me you did. And there is coming a day, mark my words, there is coming a day when this will be the stuff of the conversation one generation to the next on planet earth. When? Well, you know where I'm going with this. Kingdom come. When the kingdom comes. In that glorious kingdom of God as He promises will come, this will happen. Verses 4-7 through will be fulfilled absolutely, unequivocally. And you might say, yeah, but... But David says, I will tell of your greatness. Can you imagine? Of of all the people in Scripture, there are certain ones who I would love to just sit and listen to. Jesus obviously trumps them all. But wouldn't it be great to hear David read his psalms or sing them? Can you imagine that? Sitting in the the caves of En Gedi as David sits in the corner with his lyre, strumming and singing. Hey guys, I wrote a new one. I would be the first one sitting down. I want to hear this. The man after God's own heart. To hear David exclaim these things. Well, you will. You will. Rick, what are you talking about? Second thing to note, gang, we will praise in David's days. We will praise in David's days. Wait a minute, David's dead. Hey, Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 9 says, They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Jeremiah wrote that 400 years after David was in the grave. They shall serve David their king, whom I will raise up for them. And I don't believe, as some try to say, that this is a metaphorical allusion to Christ, because the Bible has no problem saying they will, they will listen to Messiah, they will see Messiah. You know, there's, there's no trouble in Scripture with pointing out that Messiah is coming. So I don't believe this is about the son of David. I believe this is literally David that God's going to raise up. David is going to be present in the Millennial Kingdom. David himself. Why would you believe that? Well, because it says so. You know? Rick, you're so simple-minded. Thank you. (laughs) Psalm 16, verse 10. David wrote, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. I used to think that was just about Jesus. Now I believe that's David and Jesus. What do you mean? Did Jesus undergo decay? No. So will David be abandoned to Sheol? No. David says, you won't abandon my soul to Sheol. 
And you will not let your Holy One undergo decay. He's talking about Himself. He's talking about the Christ. And in both situations, we have a marvelous truth. Hosea chapter 3, verse 5. Hosea the prophet said, Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to His goodness in the last days. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 24. I will be their God and my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. David, serving, raised up in the millennial kingdom, vice president to Jesus. I think that's what we're talking about here. Are you absolutely sure, Pastor Rick? No, I'm not. But I think so. Seems to be all indications that David will serve as a princely chief of staff, if you will. Or vice president, or prince to Jesus the King. Why would God do that? Because, you Bible students know, the kingdom is first and foremost for Israel. It's a fulfillment of a promise God made to the people of Israel. And David, their greatest king, is going to be raised up and is going to serve as a prince alongside Jesus in that coming kingdom. What's the practical upshot of all this? Well, what we need to understand, and the reason I point this out is not just to give you a little buzz that David's going to be around. The idea, gang, is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is larger than this life. We've got to stop thinking in terms of these bodies. We need a paradigm shift as followers of Jesus Christ. We have got to shift our mentality to recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is larger than this life. We we toy with it from time to time. We consider it. We've got to embrace this. The gospel of Jesus is larger than this life. Far bigger. We are so hung up on this life. So caught up in the things of now. We've got to stop thinking in terms of these bodies and our temporary state and by faith start to move toward and into the eternal kingdom mentality. Because if we thought like that, it would change everything about how we lived our lives. Are you all with me? Do you get what I'm saying here? If we focus on, if we're thinking about, if we're looking to the kingdom, if our purpose here is an eternal purpose and not a temporary one, it will make all the difference in how we live, in our happiness, in how we approach even, even church. We wouldn't be here to hear another sermon from Pastor Rick, to get some praise, a cracker and some juice and head on the way. We would come in here for equipping. We would walk in the door going, time for training for the kingdom. There's more I need to know to do what I know God has called me to do this week. And what's going to come off the page, I don't care what Rick thinks he's going to teach, the Spirit's going to be here to show me something I need to know that I can put into play this week. Because I'm preparing for the kingdom, not just for my life. I mean, our lives are so puny by comparison. And yet so great when we have this kingdom mentality. When we think beyond, it is not difficult for a kingdom child to think in terms of David showing up and being the vice president. Well, of course, no problem. I got no issue with that. Yeah, but he's dead. Yeah, but that's you know that's a temporary thing. That's then. Now is coming. Look at verse eight. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. And anyone who says the God of the Old Testament is harsh and uncaring hasn't read the Old Testament. Anyone who says he's just a judgmental guy misses his self-description. What do you mean? Exodus chapter 34 verse 6 is quoted there in verse 8. This is God's description of himself. David reaches back to that moment when Moses says, God, show me your glory. God says, no, that would fry your brain. I'll tell you what, I'll pass by and you can see my glory as it trails off. And as God passes by, covering David in the cleft of the rock, covers him with his hand, passes by, David catches a glimpse of his glory, and God says about himself, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, great in loving kindness. God describes himself. This is who I am. You want to know me? This is who I am. And I've shared this before. It's from that self-description then that we look at all the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. When you understand his nature, his behavior makes perfect sense. 
When you just look at his behavior, you don't know what his nature is. Sometimes it can be confusing. But when you know he's a God of all grace, all mercy, loving kindness, it changes why he does what he does. And we can look and see that. And David, David was a man of the word. David would not have included this verse in the Ashray in Psalm 146 if he wasn't a man of the word. And David alludes to that verse, that self-declaration of God. He alludes to it constantly throughout the Psalms. We've seen it many times. He quotes it specifically in Psalm 103 and again here. Number three, if you're jotting down notes, there is nobility in studying biblically. This is a noble thing to do. Now, I hope you're getting the theme here that we're talking about kingdom stuff. And it's going to get a little intense in just a moment here. There is nobility in studying biblically. Bible students, do you remember what God's command was for any king who would sit on the throne in Israel? Remember, there were three don'ts, but what was the do? What did the king have to do? Yes, yes, yes. All right. To sit down and write Torah. That was the first thing. You sit on your throne, get an empty scroll, get the Levitical uh, scribes around you, and you start to write. And you start with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and you write through all five books of Torah. And the scribes were there to make sure every word was accurate and legitimate. And when it was all done, the king would have these self-written scrolls of Torah law. And the Lord said, you shall meditate on these every day of your rule. David did. Well, how do you know that? Because (laughs) look at the Psalms. They are packed full of the Torah. Full of the truth. Full of prophecy, which is all throughout Torah as well. Because David was a man who was in the Word. There's nobility in studying biblically. Deuteronomy 17.19 tells us that it, it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn the fear of the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. And David is the one king, the one king that we know did this every day of his life. Some of the other kings came along well after him, a few. But he's the one we know followed this, poured over the word constantly and continually and persistently. And I'll tell you this, when I'm running short on happiness, one of my favorite places to go, one of my happy places, is just to sit down and open up the word. Uh, From time to time, people will say, Rick, I appreciate the amount of time you put into study. You don't get it. I love it. I should not get paid for this. Don't stop paying me. But I, I, I just love this. I eat it up, and I find such joy here. And I, I come out of the office afterwards. I'm just, I'm a better person than when I start. And David did this. Everything. It's a noble thing you do this morning. Having your Bibles open, being in the Word, it is a noble thing. Luke described the believers in in Berea this way. Acts seventeen eleven that these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Examining the scriptures daily. You see, happiness is practiced. And it's practiced in daily worship, but it's also practiced in the daily word. And being in the word daily brings that joy into your heart. And again, I'm telling those of you who, like me, from time to time, you find something missing, man, go to the word. Go to the worship and practice the presence of God. How do I get going with this kind of noble-mindedness? Well, the word in Acts 17, I want to point out to you, where it says that the believers in Berea were more noble-minded because they searched the Scriptures. Noble-minded. The Greek word is eugenes. Or eugenes. Eugenes. What does it mean? It means of noble character, but even better, it means well-born. Are you well born? Well, how can I get well born? Get born again. Is is the intent here. John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom. The kingdom. So, you're not going to develop a kingdom mentality unless you're born again. You've got to be born again, first and foremost. And... I would assume that most, if not all of you in here this morning are born again, believers in Jesus Christ. If you're not, you need to be and talk to me about that. Let's pray about that. Get born again today. Get baptized. We'll break through the ice. Nicola, I'm ready to do it. (laughs) It's a little joke. Um, 
But I assume most of you probably have been born again. So what does that mean? It means move on to the kingdom. Get out of the place of just being well born. Well, I'm well born. I'm noble. Act like it. I'm of nobility. Be noble then. Search the Scriptures. Worship the Lord. Pursue Him. Seek that kingdom mentality that is larger than life. Move forward in all of these things. Be well born. And that's where it begins. It's not where it ends. And now we get to the heart of the Ashrei, which also happens to be the central message of all Scripture. Verse 10. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is a royal psalm because this psalm is a psalm of the kingdom. And it's a mentality shifting, a paradigm shifting psalm. As David's saying it, this gets into our heads and we start to think differently. To shift away from the temporary to the kingdom, to the things that matter, to the things that are truly eternal. This has a central kingdom orientation. It's worship of the great king by the citizens of the kingdom in a time when the kingdom will fully be realized. And that's what's going on here. And the central message of the Bible is the kingdom. And gang, our happiness is based on this hope. Our happiness is grounded in this hope. Number four, you might jot down, our jubilation is a kingdom orientation. A kingdom orientation. What were the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he started his public ministry? Do you remember? Repent for the The kingdom of heaven is at hand. First thing, it wasn't... It, it, It wasn't... Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. He would say that. He would get there. And it wasn't do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He would get there. He'd talk about that. But the first words out of his mouth that defined Jesus' ministry, repent, because the kingdom is here. The kingdom's at hand. Jesus was bringing in this new mentality. This mentality that, as I'll point out in a moment, the Jewish people misunderstood. A kingdom mentality. And the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, goes on to reference the kingdom 55 times in Jesus' life and teachings and ministry. A major reason why people get confused in their theology is they misunderstand from Genesis to Revelation the kingdom is the central message of the Gospel of Jesus. It's all about the kingdom. From where we stand today, and I need to take a quick side note with you, side trip. From where we stand today, the kingdom has three distinct stages as related to Messiah. Three stages to it. Keep your finger there and flip over to Luke chapter 17. The three stages of the kingdom that I want to quickly point out are simply past, present, and future. And when I say past, I'm not talking about the Jewish kingdom. I'm not talking about David's kingdom, or the kingdom of Judah, or the kingdom of Israel, or those days past. That was a shadow of the substance. A picture of what was coming. A picture of the past, present, and future of the kingdom. And what I mean is this. Luke chapter 17 and verse 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming. See, this was on the mind of the Jewish leaders. When is the kingdom coming? He answered and said to them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in your midst. Now, this verse has been misunderstood and and misquoted. People take the King James Version or the NIV Version that translate this, the kingdom of God is within you. And suddenly, this statement of Jesus becomes spiritualized. Not a bad thing. But he's talking, this is the past of the kingdom. What do you mean, Rick? The word in the context here, the kingdom of God, he says, is in your midst. That word in the Greek is entos. 
And entos, it can mean within you, but the concept of within you isn't like internally, internalized. It means among you. In your midst, here, present. It would be me saying, hey, Spencer's here. You know, John is in our midst. Barb is within us here. doesn't mean that Barb is floating around inside my heart. Get out of there. What are you doing? It it means (laughs) she's here. When Jesus said, and don't miss this, when Jesus says, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst, he's saying, the king is here. The Jews are looking for this, this nebulous kingdom thing, this control, this power over the earth. They're looking to throw off the shackles of Rome, and Jesus says, It's me. The kingdom of God is here. It's me. This is the past tense of the kingdom, the first time Jesus came. Jesus in their midst is the embodiment of the coming kingdom. Well, Rick, how do you know that? Look at the next verse. Aside from the Greek word entos, the next verse he says to his disciples, the days will come when you will no longer see one of the days of the Son of Man. Or you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. So David, so, so, so Jesus says, the kingdom of God is right here, is in your midst. And then he turns to his apostles and says, but the day is coming when you're going to long to see me and I'm not going to be here. I am the kingdom. The, the kingdom, to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king, right? So the kingdom begins with the king. So Jesus in his first coming was a precursor to the coming kingdom. The past tense of the kingdom is Jesus' first coming. When the king first showed up on the earth. Kind of like his first coronation as he rode in the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. A coronation of the king, and yet the king was killed. In that first coming, the past tense of the kingdom is what we see. A preview, if you will, of coming attractions. The blind received their sight. And the lame walked, and the deaf could hear. And the dead were raised, and we got a sense of the kingdom that is not limited by the flesh, not limited by the natural. A supernatural thing is among us and it's going to happen. Jesus previews all of this. That's the kingdom past tense. But the kingdom is also clearly future. Jump from past to future. Revelation 11.15 says, The seventh angel sounded. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, O Lord God the Almighty, we who are and who were, because You have taken Your great power and have begun to reign. And that's a future thing. That the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of God. Now understand this. In the book of Revelation, there are three coronations of the king. Three coronations. Revelation 5 gives the priestly coronation. As we see the lamb who was slain. Which is the job of a priest to slay the lamb. Now we see the lamb who was slain and Jesus praised, coronated there in Revelation 5. Revelation 11, we see a prophetic coronation. That the kingdom of the world is becoming, the word is, is becoming the kingdom of God. And it's not until Revelation 19 we see the third coronation of Jesus Christ, a kingly coronation when He actually comes in the flesh, comes back to rule and reign on the planet. Three coronations. Three coronations. A priestly coronation, a prophetic coronation, and a kingly coronation. And Jesus is prophet and priest and king. Now stay with me. Three coronations of Christ shouldn't surprise us It's happened before. The Son of David has been, will be, ultimately coronated three times. So was David himself. Three coronations. 1 Samuel chapter 16, when he was a shepherd of lambs. Samuel comes and anoints David and he is coronated king as a young man in the hills of Bethlehem. The second time, 2 Samuel chapter 2 verse 4, he is coronated by the people of Judah as they make him their king. But not all Israel, not yet. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3, all Israel now accepts David as their king. Three coronations for King David. Three coronations for Jesus Christ in Revelation 5, 11, and 19. Three coronations of the king as the kingdom is expressed past, present, and future. 
Jesus was coronated in His triumphal entry. Jesus will be coronated in His great and glorious return to earth. Revelation 19. Past and future. What about present? Jesus is coronated in the life of the believer. And in your heart. Is He your King now? This pattern is an amazing pattern that just opens up before us in Scripture. In the past, Jesus revealed the kingdom. In the future, Jesus will come as a promise of the kingdom. But there's that third aspect. And that's, what do we do with the kingdom right now? How do we live now as people of the King? Verse 11, they speak of the glory of your kingdom. They talk of your power. They make known to the Son of Men, sons of men, your mighty acts, and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. That's our calling. That's what we do. That's how we handle the kingdom now, as we proclaim it. Everywhere we go, we're talking about it. That we are in the in-between stage of the kingdom. The kingdom that was past when Jesus first came, that will be future when Jesus comes again. But Jesus' presence in our lives, He is in our midst. And so, that's where there is some truth, some wonderful truth to the idea of Jesus saying the kingdom of God is in your midst. I'm right here. But we can't say, we can't proclaim the kingdom of God is within me. Because He is within me. The King is within. We're in this in-between stage. Paul described it this way, Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. It's righteousness and peace and, for those of you who are missing this, joy in the Holy Spirit. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's not temporal things. And the reason perhaps happiness eludes so many people is they're looking for the physical, temporal happiness. You're not going to find it. I have an issue in my life. I have a problem, really. I wish you would pray for me. I have a new addiction. And I'm struggling with it. Where I look forward to, I kid you not, I look forward to around 9 o'clock at night when I get to have my cherry Pop-Tarts and milk. I cannot get enough of these things. Uh, You know, it used to be Papa Murphy's chocolate chip cookies. No, they're out. Cherry Pop-Tarts are in. And I know it's going to kill me. I'm okay with that because I've got a larger-than-life mentality here. Pop-Tarts! And here's the thing. I eat them one night and I want them again the next night because the night that I had them before, it wasn't enough. It's never enough. You notice that? You can't eat just one Pop-Tart because you open the package and there are two in there. So if you're going to eat the one, you might as well eat the two. Well, now you're two in. Why stop there? I mean, after all, there's only six in the box, you know? And once you've gotten through the whole box, you're such a glutton anyway, you might as well have another. And you go to Pop-Tarts Anonymous, you know, the PTA. <laughs> I, I just, I have this, this, <laughs> this longing for these Pop-Tarts. I look forward to it all day long. But the kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking. It's not these stupid temporal things that, that we find some pleasure in. You know, when the day is hard, at least I'm going to have my Pop-Tarts later. No, no. <laughs> it is righteousness and it is peace. And it is joy in the Holy Spirit, the kingdom now within me, overwhelming me, and being declared by me. And if I don't understand the in-between of the kingdom, two problems. One, we're in danger of just kind of giving up on the whole thing. And a lot of people do. A lot of people just don't think about the kingdom of God. A lot of people go and get, get their church out of the way but they don't really think about what is going on here. The other thing that can happen, and I've seen this happen a lot in the church, is trying to force the kingdom now, which is exactly what the Jewish people did with Jesus. They didn't understand. They didn't get. Jesus' coming was was a preview. And then we would enter into this, this age of grace where we would proclaim the kingdom in between the preview of the king and the second coming of the king. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. And so, they grabbed hold of Jesus and they tried to force Him to rule now. you got to be our king right now. John 6.15, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew to the mountain by Himself alone. So interesting. Jesus knew what was going on. The political, 
And the religious elements were starting to broil and say, we need a king. Maybe this is the guy. Our political figure. Our new campaign. Let's get behind him. He can change everything for us. And Jesus withdraws. And you know what the next thing is that he does? He comes back and he starts teaching so offensively that even disciples are leaving in droves. You've got to eat my flesh. got to drink my blood. What? You're weird, man. And off they went. And I'm thinking, okay, if Jesus is the king and is coming to make his kingdom, he made two huge errors there. He withdrew right at the time when he could have taken center stage, and then he starts to be offensive. Well, Jesus knew what he was doing. The time was not yet for the kingdom. He was the king, but the kingdom would still come. And the Jewish people missed that. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the kingdom of God and His Messiah that has brought about the misery of the Jewish people for centuries. And I think that's why there's a missing letter in the psalm. And it's right here. You get to verse 13, and it starts with the letter Mem. You get to verse 14, and it's the letter Samech. It skips over the noon. Why does David skip the noon? Right here. Why is there a skip between verses 13 and 14? Gang, I believe, I think, this is just me talking. You've got to weigh this and pray it through. But in verse 13, there was a kingdom. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. And David is writing. And David was king when he wrote that. And there was a glorious kingdom in Israel when he wrote that. But between verse 13 and verse 14, there was no kingdom. Israel fell apart. It fell apart. Why does David skip it? Because the kingdom of Israel fell apart just like all the kingdoms of man fall. Just like you have fallen, just like I have fallen. What's missing between verses 13 and 14 is the kingdom. Look at this, verse 14. The very next verse, the Lord sustains all who fall. And raises up all who are bowed down. Wait a minute, what? You're talking about the glories of the kingdom in one verse that's everlasting and then you go to this? Why? Because prophetically, that glorious kingdom was going to fall apart. And the Holy Spirit through David is now saying, hey, the kingdom is glorious, it's coming, but first there's going to be a fall. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose your joy. What do you mean? Because the kingdom will come. Because the Lord will restore. He sustains those who fall. He raises up those who are bowed down. There is a promise here inherent for Israel. He's going to raise it back up. He's going to raise Israel to a glory greater than their former glories. God the King also will raise you up. Because, number five in our list here, the Lord sustains all who fall. And it's a wonderful truth. That's the message of the kingdom, by the way. That's the message of kingdom come. From the fall of Adam to the fall of Israel to the fall of every single one of us throughout history, the great king raises up. It is out of this fallen mess, he raises up a kingdom. Verse 15. The eyes of all look to you. And you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him. To all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and save them. The Lord keeps all who love Him. But all the wicked... He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and all flesh will bless His holy name forever and ever. And the key word at the tail end of this kingdom psalm is all. Ten times in these last seven verses, David uses the word all because this is an all-encompassing message of an all-glorious kingdom that is coming by the hand of God. Is something missing in your happiness? Is there something not going... You're you're having trouble getting there. Listen, we are in the in-between. And the full realization of both the kingdom and the king is yet to be. It's not that we're trying to put it off. We want it now. I desire Him to come now. But until He comes, I'm in the place of in-between. Until He arrives, 
I stand in the place of hope for the coming kingdom. And it's the stuff of all joy. The hope of His coming. The Psalms will end out, and we'll see this Wednesday night, Psalm 145 through 150, is nothing but sheer, non-stop, unadulterated praise. And it's a great way for the Psalms to end. There are no more cries for deliverance. And no more songs of suffering or hardship. There are no more imprecatory psalms. You know, where David's calling down a curse. No more curses. The book of Psalms just ends up with pure praise. And it's marvelous and it's wonderful. And it would be perfect if it weren't for that missing noon. That one little letter's missing. And the last thing I want you to understand here, and it's just marvelous in the way the Word is put together. The Psalms would end up picture perfect if not for that one little thing. That little thing that's missing there. And I think it's again on purpose because the jewel missing in this crown of praise is missing because, listen, because our praise is incomplete. And will be an incomplete thing until He comes. Until the coronation. He was coronated in His first coming as He rode into Jerusalem. He is coronated in my life and my heart as King. He will be coronated, but it's not until that final coronation that as with David, all Israel finally was complete as a nation, as a kingdom. Finally all back together under the rule of David. In the same way. Our praise is incomplete until... That day when we are all gathered together, there are those of us here praising the best that we can. We have physical limitations. I've talked about this recently with the Friday night thing. It just wore me out. Got to the second to last song and and, and had to remember to breathe because I was starting to get lightheaded. And we had just talked about with the worship team beforehand how we could go on and on and on and on and on forever. Not for these bodies that wear out. Can I just stop now and go home? I just need a break. We'll come back and pray some more. Our praise is incomplete. And we worship the best that we can, but, but our praise is also incomplete because there are those who have gone on before us. We are not gathered together with all those who worship the Lord. Even the church, look at the church this morning. How many of us are here? Versus how many of us are at other churches scattered throughout the island in Skagit counties? Scattered throughout the world. We're incomplete. We're not all gathered together as one glorious people of God. Oh, we all love Jesus. We all are the church. But, but it's not complete. Just as there's a letter missing, so there's a jewel missing right now that will not be placed back in the crown until the coronation of the King. Let me read it to you and we're done this morning. Revelation 19, after these things I heard. Something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great heartlet who has corrupted the earth with her immorality. And He has avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you His bondservants, you who fear Him, the small and the great. And then, listen, then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns and it's the final coronation and in that moment everything is complete the jewels back in the crown the worship everything we have our perfect bodies we're going on worshiping forever never tired never worn out never limited the praise is complete wow until that hallelujah chorus until we sing that song That jewel is missing from the crown of praise. The book of praise, the book of Psalms itself, remains incomplete. But when all this happens, we're going to join those and guess what we're going to be doing? Casting crowns. Jewel-encrusted crowns before the Lord on that perfect and glorious day. Father, we look forward to Your kingdom come. 
And we, Lord, are excited even to think about the first coming of Jesus and how He handled that and how He proclaimed Himself to be King and set our eyes on things forward. And Father, while I pray for Your kingdom come, I pray for Your kingdom now in our hearts, in our lives. I pray that we would be noble-minded people. That we would accept our well-bornness in Jesus. No longer wallowing in what we were before, but glorying in who we are now in Christ. That, Father, we would walk as citizens of Your kingdom. And we would declare the glories and the wonders and the majesty of Your kingdom and of our great King Jesus. Until You come, we worship You in Jesus' name. Amen.